Chapter Ten of the Blythedale Romance. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Blythedale Romance by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter Ten: A Visitor from Town. Hollingsworth and I, we had been hoeing potatoes that forenoon, while the rest of the fraternity were engaged in a distant quarter of the farm, sat under a clump of maples, eating our eleven o'clock lunch, when we saw a stranger approaching along the edge of the field. He had admitted himself from the roadside through a turnstile, and seemed to have a purpose of speaking with us. And, by the by, we were favoured with many visits at Blythedale, especially from people who sympathised with our theories, and perhaps held themselves ready to unite in our actual experiment, as soon as there should appear a reliable promise of its success. It was rather ludicrous, indeed to me at least, whose enthusiasm had insensibly been exhaled, together with the perspiration of many a hard day's toil, it was absolutely funny, therefore, to observe what a glory was shed about our life and labours in the imaginations of these longing proselytes. In their view we were as poetical as Arcadians, besides being as practical as the hard-fisted husbandmen in Massachusetts. We did not, it is true, spend much time in piping to our sheep or warbling our innocent loves to the sisterhood, but they gave us credit for imbuing the ordinary rustic occupations with a kind of religious poetry, insomuch that our very cow-yards and pigsties were as delightfully fragrant as a flower-garden. Nothing used to please me more than to see one of these lay enthusiasts snatch up a hoe, as they were very prone to do, and set to work with a vigour that perhaps carried him through a dozen ill-directed strokes. Men are wonderfully soon satisfied in this day of shameful bodily enervation, when from one end of life to the other such multitudes never taste the sweet weariness that follows accustomed toil. I seldom saw the new enthusiasm that did not grow as flimsy and flaccid as the proselyte's moistened shirt-collar, with a quarter of an hour's active labour under a July sun. But the person now at hand had not at all the air of one of these amiable visionaries. He was an elderly man, dressed rather shabbily, yet decently enough in a grey frock-coat, faded towards a brown hue and wore a broad-brimmed white hat of the fashion of several years gone by. His hair was perfect silver, without a dark thread in the whole of it. His nose, though it had a scarlet tip, by no means indicated the jollity of which a red nose is the generally admitted symbol. He was a subdued, undemonstrative old man, who would doubtless drink a glass of liquor now and then, and probably more than was good for him, not, however, with a purpose of undue exhilaration, but in the hope of bringing his spirits up to the ordinary level of the world's cheerfulness. Drawing nearer, there was a shy look about him, as if he were ashamed of his poverty, or at any rate for some reason or other, would rather have us glance at him sidelong than take a full front view. He had a queer appearance of hiding himself behind the patch on his left eye. "'I know this old gentleman,' said I to Hollingsworth, as we sat observing him. "'That is, I have met him a hundred times in town, and have often amused my fancy with wondering what he was before he came to be what he is. 
He haunts restaurants and such places, and has an odd way of lurking in corners or getting behind a door whenever practicable, and holding out his hand with some little article in it which he wishes you to buy. The eye of the world seems to trouble him, although he necessarily lives so much in it. I never expected to see him in an open field. "'Have you learned anything of his history?' asked Hollingsworth. "'Not a circumstance,' I answered. "'But there must be something curious in it. "'I take him to be a harmless sort of a person, and a tolerably honest one. "'But his manners, being so furtive, remind me of those of a rat. "'A rat without the mischief, the fierce eye, the teeth to bite with, or the desire to bite.' See now, he means to skulk along that fringe of bushes and approach us on the other side of our clump of maples. We soon heard the old man's velvet tread on the grass, indicating that he had arrived within a few feet of where we sat. "'Good morning, Mr. Moody,' said Hollingsworth, addressing the stranger as an acquaintance. "'You must have had a hot and tiresome walk from the city. Sit down and take a morsel of our bread and cheese.' The visitor made a grateful little murmur of acquiescence, and sat down in a spot somewhat removed, so that glancing round I could see his grey pantaloons and dusty shoes, while his upper part was mostly hidden behind the shrubbery. Nor did he come forth from his retirement during the whole of the interview that followed. We handed him such food as we had, together with a brown jug of molasses and water, would that it had been brandy or something better for the sake of his chill old heart, like priests offering dainty sacrifice to an enshrined and invisible idol. I have no idea that he really lacked sustenance, but it was quite touching, nevertheless, to hear him nibbling away at our crusts. "'Mr. Moody,' said I, "'do you remember selling me one of those very pretty little silk purses of which you seem to have a monopoly in the market?' I keep it to this day, I can assure you. Ah, thank you, said our guest. Yes, Mr. Coverdale, I used to sell a good many of those little purses. He spoke languidly, and only those few words, like a watch with an inelastic spring that just ticks a moment or two and stops again. He seemed a very forlorn old man. In the wantonness of youth, strength, and comfortable condition, making my prey of people's individualities, as my custom was, I tried to identify my mind with the old fellow's and take his view of the world as if looking through a smoke-blackened glass at the sun. It robbed the landscape of all its life. Those pleasantly swelling slopes of our farm descending towards the wide meadows, through which sluggishly circled the brimful tide of the Charles, bathing the long sedges on its hither and farther shores, the broad sunny gleam over the winding water, that peculiar picturesqueness of the scene where capes and headlands put themselves boldly forth upon the perfect level of the meadow, as into a green lake with inlets between the promontories, the shadowy woodland, with twinkling showers of light falling into its depths, the sultry heat-vapour which rose everywhere like incense, and in which my soul delighted as indicating so rich a fervour in the passionate day, and in the earth that was burning with its love, I beheld all these things as through old Moody's eyes. When my eyes are dimmer than they have yet come to be, 
I will go thither again, and see if I did not catch the tone of his mind aright, and if the cold and lifeless tint of his perceptions be not then repeated in my own. Yet it was unaccountable to myself the interest that I felt in him. "'Have you any objections,' said I, "'to telling me who made those little purses?' "'Gentlemen have often asked me that,' said Moody slowly, "'but I shake my head and say little or nothing, "'and creep out of the way as well as I can. "'I am a man of few words, "'and if gentlemen were to be told one thing, "'they would be very apt, I suppose, to ask me another. "'But it happens just now, Mr. Coverdale, "'that you can tell me more about the maker of those little purses "'than I can tell you.' "'Why do you trouble him with needless questions, Coverdale?' interrupted Hollingsworth. "'You must have known long ago that it was Priscilla. "'And so, my good friend, you've come to see her? "'Well, I'm glad of it. "'You will find her altered very much for the better since that winter evening when you put her in my charge. "'Why, Priscilla has a bloom in her cheeks now.' "'Has my pale little girl a bloom?' repeated Moody with a kind of slow wonder. "'Priscilla with a bloom in her cheeks. "'Ah, I am afraid I shall not know my little girl. "'And is she happy?' "'Just as happy as a bird,' answered Hollingsworth. "'Then, gentlemen,' said our guest apprehensively, "'I don't think it well for me to go any farther. "'I crept hitherward only to ask about Priscilla, "'and now that you have told me such good news, "'perhaps I can do no better than to creep back again.' If she were to see this old face of mine, the child would remember some very sad times which we spent together. Some very sad times, indeed. She has forgotten them, I know, them and me, else she could not be so happy, nor have a bloom in her cheeks. Yes, 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 continued he, still with the same torpid utterance. With many thanks to you, Mr. Hollingsworth, I will creep back to town again." "'You shall do no such thing, Mr. Moody,' said Hollingsworth bluffly. "'Priscilla often speaks of you, and if there lacks anything to make her cheeks bloom like two damask roses, I'll venture to say it is just the sight of your face. Come, we will go and find her.' "'Mr. Hollingsworth,' said the old man in his hesitating way. "'Well,' answered Hollingsworth. "'Has there been any call for Priscilla?' asked Moody.' and though his face was hidden from us, his tone gave a sure indication of the mysterious nod and wink with which he put the question. You know, I think, sir, what I mean. I have not the remotest suspicion what you mean, Mr. Moody, replied Hollingsworth. Nobody, to my knowledge, has called for Priscilla except yourself. But come, we are losing time, and I have several things to say to you, by the way. And, Mr. Hollingsworth, repeated Moody. "'Well, again,' cried my friend rather impatiently, "'what now?' "'There is a lady here,' said the old man, and his voice lost some of its wearisome hesitation. "'You will account it a very strange matter for me to talk about, but I chanced to know this lady when she was but a little child. If I am rightly informed, she has grown to be a very fine woman, and makes a brilliant figure in the world with her beauty and her talents, and her noble way of spending her riches. I should recognize this lady, so people tell me, by a magnificent flower in her hair. What a rich tinge it gives to his colorless ideas when he speaks of Zenobia, I whispered to Hollingsworth, but how can there possibly be any interest or connecting link between him and her?' 
"'The old man for past years,' whispered Hollingsworth, "'has been a little out of his right mind, as you probably see.' "'What I would inquire,' resumed Moody, "'is whether this beautiful lady is kind to my poor Priscilla.' "'Very kind,' said Hollingsworth. "'Does she love her?' asked Moody. "'It should seem so,' answered my friend. "'They are always together.' "'Like a gentlewoman and her maid-servant, I fancy,' suggested the old man. "'There was something so singular in his way of saying this "'that I could not resist the impulse to turn quite round "'so as to catch a glimpse of his face, "'almost imagining that I should see another person than old Moody. "'But there he sat with the patched side of his face towards me. "'Like an elder and younger sister, rather,' replied Hollingsworth. "'Ah,' said Moody more complacently, "'for his latter tones had harshness and acidity in them.' It would gladden my old heart to witness that. If one thing would make me happier than another, Mr. Hollingsworth, it would be to see that beautiful lady holding my little girl by the hand. Come along, said Hollingsworth, and perhaps you may. After a little more delay on the part of our freakish visitor, they set forth together, old Moody keeping a step or two behind Hollingsworth, so that the latter could not very conveniently look him in the face. I remained under the tuft of maples, doing my utmost to draw an inference from the scene that had just passed. In spite of Hollingsworth's off-hand explanation, it did not strike me that our strange guest was really beside himself, but only that his mind needed screwing up like an instrument long out of tune, the strings of which have ceased to vibrate smartly and sharply. Methought it would be profitable for us, projectors of a happy life, to welcome this old grey shadow, and cherish him as one of us, and let him creep about our domain, in order that he might be a little merrier for our sakes, and we sometimes a little sadder for his. Human destinies look ominous without some perceptible intermixture of the sable or the grey, and then, too, should any of our fraternity grow feverish with an over-exulting sense of prosperity, it would be a sort of cooling regimen to slink off into the woods and spend an hour or a day or as many days as might be requisite to the cure in uninterrupted communion with this deplorable old Moody. Going homeward to dinner I had a glimpse of him behind the trunk of a tree gazing earnestly towards a particular window of the farmhouse, and by and by Priscilla appeared at this window, playfully drawing along Zenobia, who looked as bright as the very day that was blazing down upon us, only not by many degrees, so well advanced towards her noon. I was convinced that this pretty sight must have been purposely arranged by Priscilla for the old man to see, but either the girl held her too long, or her fondness was resented as too great a freedom, for Zenobia suddenly put Priscilla decidedly away and gave her a haughty look, as from a mistress to a dependent. Old Moody shook his head, and again and again I saw him shake it as he withdrew along the road, and at the last point whence the farmhouse was visible he turned and shook his uplifted staff. End of chapter 10